Maarten. Wieneke. You're the host and mm. I'm the editor. And we started this podcast new material with a question. Can we understand our work better through its materials? Yeah, and like who better to talk to than material designers? People with an intimate knowledge of the manufacturing process, people who literally know what gets into the sausage. Um, people that you want to talk to if you want to know how to reduce pollution or counter climate disaster or end social injustices. True, and on top of that, we will look at the Dutch landscape, industry and economy, together with scientists, philosophers and producers. Good idea. But why not then start at the end of things? The place where products and materials land when they are no longer needed. Where things officially become waste. By the way, that's the theme of this episode. So, we're off to the dump. To the waste facilities of Atero in Drenthe. And that's a pretty difficult place to find if it wasn't for the giant hill right next to it. Made entirely of garbage. I'm off, and my guide is Robert Koray. Um, by the way, it really starts to smell right now. Yes. I can't tell yet if I think it stinks or not. Uh, I think... It okay. smells a little bit like uh, butter. It's an organic uh, waste uh, smell. I wish you told me that before, because I actually can't eat butter at all. You, you, you don't no, like butter? Oh, no, no, I wretch. I literally, I can't help it even. Oh, well, it's going to be an interesting time it for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Shall, shall I just explain what uh, what's happening here? Yes. So, what we see here is, uh, yeah, we have three post-separation lines where we take out materials from residual waste. So the first step in uh, this line is a very big sieve. And there we sieve all materials into fraction sizes. So the smallest part is uh, yeah, organic waste that we sieve out. That's a belt that you see over there. Then a little bit bigger materials, still bigger and again bigger, so four belts. Then such a fraction first goes was a ballistic separator. What a ballistic separator does, it shakes around the materials on a, yeah, on a kind of a belt that is at an angle. And by shaking it, all the flat parts move up and all the 3D parts, the round parts, roll down. So we have a 2D and a 3D separation. The flat parts is mostly paper, but also plastic film. The 3D parts that roll down this ballistic separator, yeah, they go past other technologies to then separate the rigid plastics and the tetras. You know, this is incredibly hypnotizing. Sorry? This is incredibly hypnotizing. <laughs> yeah. And you can, uh, it's also fun to see what people still throw away. Yeah. Folks, I was reminded of this Sesame Street song by Oscar the Grouch called I Love Trash, because after visiting the dump, I completely agree. But of course, um, circularity is all about renewal. So this is the trash, where's the new stuff? In order to answer that, I went to a tiny brick bakery by the Rhine. 
And there I spoke to Daria Buryakova, a designer who sort of made it her specialty to turn waste into new things. Yeah, my name is uh, Daria. I'm a, a material designer. Um, and I have my studio since 2015, uh, based in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And I work uh, very close in collaboration with different manufacturers and uh, recycling companies to create uh, yeah, new exciting ways how we can use waste and how we can implement it in different ways. And, and where are we now? Now we are uh, in the Silverschoen Randwijk. Uh, it's a, a brick manufacturer. Uh, who are focused mainly on uh, creating products for restoration projects and uh, but also for a new uh, new buildings but they have a very let's say it's a family business uh, and it's yeah let's say very nice that they can also give opportunities for a company like mine and more like experimental projects to take place here so that that's that's quite unique i think and uh, that's what we are doing here today also yeah what are you doing exactly? Um, for my work, I experiment a lot with uh, different uh, waste streams. And uh, a couple of years ago, I get uh, to know Stone Cycling. Uh, it's a company uh, based uh, in Amsterdam and also here uh, with the two, uh, um, let's say, main, uh, uh, main uh, Oprichter, how we can say in the Netherlands, so like founders. And uh, uh, one of them, Tom Zust, and he created the brick which is based on waste. So that was his uh, graduation project also from Design Academy. And uh, now they are upscaling and they did already quite some beautiful, nice buildings all around the world. And this year we want uh, actually to extend the collection together to make also the shiny bricks. Because they uh, knew my previous experience with uh, uh, glazes based on waste. And we decided also to extend it uh, to their collection of waste-based brick, but also with uh, uh, waste-based glaze. And on the left you can see all the materials that are uh, used for creating the uh, stone cycling bricks, but also uh, the other, uh, other materials which are used. But like the sand, this, this kind of color, you see this mountain, mm -hmm. uh, yellowish mountain, this is actually uh, glass waste. So it's a glass powder, and this is the material which comes from the discarding of, let's say, recycling the glass bottles, the Heineken and Coca-Cola bottles, and the fine powder which comes from the machinery, which cannot be used for making new bottles, is actually what you see here. So it's a material that cannot be used in anything else, let's say, from point of view making glasses but it's a perfect source of material to make a glaze and also uh, ceramic materials uh, am i standing on it now because yes, I, I sort yeah. of sort of climbed on top to see uh, uh, over the wall but it just looks like mud to me so yeah wait a second it is, what is it? It, it's, it's kind of sandy slurry <laughs> it doesn't feel like it doesn't smell like anything uh, sometimes when it's wet, it does smell okay. a little. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, yeah, it, it, it's a bit like chalk. Yeah. Huh. But I'm holding glass in my hand. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if it's the same mountain, it should be. We have the waste. We've got the new things. It's time to introduce a new layer. Because these things are in the here and the now. But what about tomorrow? Now, for that, I need somebody else, somebody who has the time, the energy, and most of all, the capacity to think about tomorrow. 
about our future. So enter philosopher Lisa Dulant. She has specialized in waste and consumption. She wrote a book about it, Beyond Ourselves. And in her home, she was explaining to me why we should be a lot more pessimistic and why you should even think of that as a good thing. Waste is always, in a sense, relative to a certain... Yeah, it's, it's me being the one who wastes something. So, so by throwing it away, it's, it's waste relative to me because you could take it out of the trash. So then um, from here you go to the one man's trash is another man's treasure. Uh, classic definition um, involving waste. But I found that students use this to strengthen the ideology of a zero-waste circular economy. That is, it strengthened the idea that there's nothing problematic about waste. Uh, there's nothing problematic about wasting um, because uh, it can become a resource once again. It can be made useful either as another object for another to use or um, by magically turning it into some kind of th thing we call energy. So um, it's not a problem because it might have been waste, but now it's an energy source. So great, problem solved. So what is really the problem with this idea of circularity because sounds nice like uh the idea that we can keep using these things that there is actually uh, this cycle what's so wrong with that it's a myth it's a fantasy um i and that i can very much understand um it's a it's a fantasy that in a way is related to i don't know the fantasy of being of living forever of immortality um, it's the idea of a party without an end. It's the idea that you can, can keep partying, drinking, doing drugs, whatever, and that you'll wake up the next day. Not a problem. So, it, it, so this ideal of circularity is in a way related to the ideal of immortality. So uh, we disavow dark sides, we disavow uh, mortality, uh, we disavow the transient, the ephemeral. And that is, of course, what waste reminds us of, that... Uh, things that were one day new, shiny and new, might be withering away, being exhausted later. Back to Robert Corain, who's showing me a small booth tucked away under all the heavy machinery. Uh, perhaps uh, one interesting thing, we try to have technology do all the work, but in the end, after all the sorting, we still need human hands to do the final quality check. Because our technology is still not perfect. And that's mostly because of the, the design of the packaging. Uh, so, for example, if we have a, a bottle uh, that is made out of polyethylene, PE, but there's a little PET layer on top of it, a sleeve, which is very popular these days, then it's seen as PET. But actually, almost everything is PE. So then, those kinds of items have to be taken off the belt by hand because the technology cannot see it. It's the same, for example, with glue pistols. Uh, if you have a pistol where you can press glue out of, well, the plastic is perfect, but then there's still some glue inside. So if you want to make new plastics out of it and there's glue in your plastic recycling machine, then the machine is broke. So all of those have to be taken out by hand. When we uh, shut down the plant, then uh, we put locks on the installation so nobody can just turn on the installation again. 
So, uh, is that a risk? Are people? Is that a hobby of people to secretly? No, it's uh, it's a special safety procedure because, for example, a few years ago we had uh, yeah the, the installation got stuck on two places. So and then the installation was shut down, and then one operator was fixing it here, and the other one was fixing it further down. And when the first one was finished, he said, "I'm." Uh, he told the, the main operator, "I'm finished." So the installation was put on. But then the other operator who was fixing it was suddenly moving through the installation. So. With these, these new safety procedures, that's no longer possible. Was he all right? He broke a lot of bones. So, uh, yeah, we uh, made also a, a video about it that all personnel had to see. Yeah, that was a real impact for everybody who was working here, especially for the person himself. Working in this way, I mean, what kind of surprises has it brought you? What did you learn that you could not know before you started doing this? Um, yeah, that's a good question. What surprised me the most is that... Daria Boryakova. Yeah, you, can, you kind of get a really connection with the material, with the waste material. Because it's... You are... Um, you're used to this very unique character. So it's kind of, uh, I think when you start working with these materials, you don't want anymore to see this bright, uh, very like wild, uh, the same colors of the other tiles and, and, and other bricks. I don't know why, but it's something that you just understand where the materials come from and, and uh, the way how it's produced. So it's very make you attached, I think, to the, to the process and to the history, let's say, a story of, of a material. And that's from all the layers, like from producer to the, um, so from designing to producer to actual final user and to the architect, because they are also engaged in this process about uh, the material, where it comes from, how it's applied. So it's all these stages, I think, are very, uh, yeah, engaging uh, for the final. <laughs> Is it starting up again? Uh, no, I can can be yes, oh. yeah, or maybe they're just bringing another lane of uh, of bricks to dry. That can be. Monsieur le Vicantop. Okay, they have to go that way, so we are on the on on the way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wanted then to show you also the the final results because you really see the potential. That that I think that that's the thing because once you see what it can, what waste can look like, what what aesthetic features it has, you completely change your opinion about what is waste and what is not waste. And what you start questioning what is waste. If that is waste, then maybe it's just a matter how we see things. It's it should change because. This once it was also stinky thing that nobody wanted, but once you apply it in a certain way, it becomes beautiful. So it's really like, and that also, yeah, it, it's a nice feeling that you made this change, you know? Like in a way, you are part of this uh, cha change, a transformation of waste. Yeah. Back to Lisa Duland.
I don't know, it feels like we're covering up all these zones that are some kind of dead zones or, or undead zones. So, so they're, they're, they're in between. Uh, so plastic, for example, is very much uh, a material that seems to be in between, stuck in between life and death. So uh, it cannot give, it, it doesn't die, really. Um, that means um, uh, it doesn't break down, so it doesn't biodegrade, so it doesn't become food for new stuff. Um, but it's not living either. Um, so it's, it's, it's stuck in between. And I feel that we are um, putting more and more of these undead zones in the world. And I think it's important to keep, <laughs> to keep, I don't know, to keep that in sight, to not uh, try and make them all unproblematic, just nice hills. What do you care? Um, because I imagine that in due time there will be stuff in there that will leak and that will be toxic and whatever. So it might look perfectly natural and green. It's like so. So the tar sand fields in Canada these days. These days, um, uh, I read somewhere that uh, they argue, no, 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 it's not a problem. Okay, so we're extracting the oil. And uh, it looks kind of awful for a time. So I, I yeah, I flew over um, once in my life. Have I taken a plane to Canada? So then first the majestic <laughs> North Pole, very white. And then we flew over the tar sand fields. That was awful. Can you it, describe it? It lasts for, it's just endless rows of, it's, it's not like brackets. It's like it's more rickety, but but you see, it's very I don't know. It's an industrial landscape, and you fly over for for an hour or something. So it's 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 huge, and um, then afterwards the Rocky Mountains. So weird experience, uh, specifically because I was of course in a plane um, that actually uses oil to stay up. Um, different matter. So the environment is is destructed, but then they say no no no, we'll make it better afterwards, um, and so they do some. A reforestation or there's plants and there's green stuff going on but studies show that so it's hardly biodiverse so it seems to be living somewhat but it's 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 not the same um it's it's been impoverished it's been exhausted and it might look green but it isn't and the same would go for that hill of yours in uh, or, or us <laughs> in Drenthe. i find myself agreeing with lisa here if something sounds too good to be true it most often is. But I also find myself forgetting that when I'm talking to people in the field. Because in the here and now, all these things make sense. It makes sense to deal with the waste that is presented to us, that we generate. It feels good and constructive in a way, I suppose. And um, I was reminded of that the moment Daria and I walked out of the factory. We were chased out by all the noise, and we ran into one of her colleagues, Tom van Soest. And on the sweaters on, eh? uh, I won't bother you too long, but there's one question that I asked Daria, and I would like to hear from you too. Is like, so working with waste, how has working with waste changed you? Yeah, it, it, it changed, uh, I think, a lot. Uh, nowadays, uh, uh, we all say, like, uh, waste is king. So we have to follow, uh, we have to follow the, the waste rules. And this is nothing like uh, normal uh, materials. You can buy it in the shop or something. So um, a lot of times uh, unexpected things uh, will happen also when, when, when you're working with waste. And 
and uh, a lot of companies uh, don't like this, but we, we actually really like this uh, this this yeah this uh, this uh, un unexpected uh, colors uh, which are coming uh, from the waste. So we see it as a as an asset. Like if you're doing your work right, you'll there will be an end to how much you can make, right? Like because they'll. Like ideally, there wouldn't be any waste to work with, right? Yeah, like, yeah. That's yeah, sort of yeah. an irony underneath everything, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm hoping uh, uh, that our business model is uh, is, is going uh, going to to suck in the future, <laughs> because there is no waste anymore. And uh, if that if that happens, and uh, then I'm really happy. But I have to think about uh, uh, raw materials again. <laughs> And then maybe then we can uh, work uh, uh, finally uh, without feeling guilt with raw materials uh, again. But but this is uh, I think going to happen uh, not in the, in the next hundred years. So <laughs> there's a lot of waste uh, still to clean up. And uh, yeah, that's a question for you too. And then I'll really let you go. It's probably. But do you feel guilty working with uh, raw materials? Yeah. 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 Yeah, this this is what something um, uh, why I started working with waste uh, because when I was graduating, uh, I was I was thinking about uh, should I make again a table or again uh, a chair or something like that. I, did, I was looking for a reason uh, to design, and I think the best reason to design is uh, is design by cleaning up. You know what I mean. <laughs> Well, here we look at all the output of uh, of our packaging sorting plant. So you have uh, different, uh, yeah, areas where we place the bills of the sorted materials. So we have uh, seven uh, output streams of uh, of packaging, plus also two kinds of metal uh, metal outputs. So in total nine output streams, plus a residue stream. So ten outputs. So uh, PET bottles, PET trays. LDPE film, uh, PE, HD, uh, yeah, HDPE and PP, drinking cartons, and so on. Is there any communication between what you here at Atero do and, for example, people who design new materials, who think about new kinds of uh, ways to maybe deal with waste or deal with uh, better ways of recycling? Is there any way that the, the world of waste has any communication with the world of design? Well, I think it, it, it would be good that uh, designers of materials would know that uh, it only makes sense to make a new material if there's economies of scale. Uh, so, if you imagine that this packaging sorting plant has yeah, nine material output streams, and we have a lot of investments, millions of investments, just to, to get those done, if you would add more material streams, we would not invest millions just to get one kilo of extra material out. Uh, that, that, that's very logical, it doesn't make business sense. So if you, for example, add a packaging material, it should at least consume 10% of all packaging materials in weight, and otherwise it's not really useful. And then of course you could say, ah, Atero should invest and uh, make the plant change or whatever. Well, perhaps we will even do it. But then we're in a European market and try to convince whatever 100 sorting plants because you like your new material that everybody should invest millions to take it out. It's not how it works. So we actually like less materials. So we, we like all packaging, for example, to be only five materials, all mono materials, so no multi-layers, 
No things added on top or glued together, just one material per item. And that would make it very easy to sort. And then we can get much more recycled materials into the market for new products. And it will all be of a better quality. Uh, so do you see any place for uh, designers of material? Is there any place in, in this kind of concept that you just now presented? Is there any place in, in that world for uh, material design? Well, I, f I think the, it would be a great challenge that, for example, plastics, if you recycle them, they lose some of their quality properties. They become uh, less, uh, they have less strength, they are less flexible, and so on. So there's a lot of innovation possible in what we call compatibilizers, so that you add little building blocks within the recycled plastic to make them strong enough and flexible enough, etc., to be almost like new plastics again. And that, of course, is yeah, would be great because then we can have multiple loops and not just a few. Uh, so um, yeah, I think that we should focus on the current materials and make them yeah, invent things to make more, more loops possible. What can the voice of, of, of a designer, in this case you then, but what can a designer do in such a situation? Look for partners, like in this case it took us, well, let's say five years to find a, a people who are willing to experiment and also have the same values and the same goals, like just Tom said. We are exactly on the same page that, yeah, we have to start with what we already have, so with waste and not produce more waste, but we have enough to work with and just, I think, try to still find people on your, on the same page and trust, move slowly, step by step and hopefully it can change the, ma the way of how the things are going, you know. Are you activistic in your work? I try. Yeah, I think that <laughs> sometimes I think when I see all my talks and, and, and uh, lectures I give uh, that I always have this, uh, um, yeah, let's say a message that to really, yeah, ask designers, please work with what you have, work locally, use local materials, um, use local techniques and, yeah. Did you become activistic because of your work? Or are you doing this work because you're activistic? I become activist because of my work, I think. Because I, I didn't expect the scale of this stuff, you know. When you start as a designer first years, you think, yeah, it's a very interesting project. But the deeper you dig, the, the bigger the problem appears to you. And then you become an activist because you think, yeah, you really have to do something with that because it's not, I can't solve it myself. So I have to have more people, uh, yeah, with me doing the same same thing and there are really a lot of designers now working in that direction so that's very positive yeah with that in mind would there be a moment where you think well yeah i did my job right like do you ever get that sense then speaking from this what you just mentioned it as the deeper you dig the bigger the problem becomes like when do you have the sense like yeah this this makes sense now i'm i'm doing something right yeah, when I will see that everybody in the world is doing this, so that there are a lot of that there are buildings are covered with waste material and there are no slate stones but geo slate stones, you know, that people pick it up and do it like the way of, let's let's say it becomes a way of working. And when I see it more and more, then I would be, I think, happy. But then you'll never be happy. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, probably, but. 
I don't know. I really like also the process. So that's made me happy. Although I maybe never will find out or maybe it will happen way later. Like Tom said, 100 years. I'm more optimistic. But uh, at least the, the process of doing that, it is a nice, nice feeling that we try. Lisa Duland. Well, we should develop an eye for the afterlife of things. So if the afterlife of a lot of things that we make or buy these days is um, very long because they're um, they're undead-like, zombie-like, then this should make us think. So what are we bringing into the world and what will it do after we're done with them? Um, so a less wasteful life would be a life in which we don't focus on the present only. Uh, yeah, this is what um, uh, uh, an Australian philosopher, uh, Gay Hawkins, calls presentism. So we're, uh, yeah, we, we should move beyond this presentism where we're only concerned about the here and now and about ourselves uh, and about what we want in life. And and then, I don't know, stretch it out a bit, move beyond the presentism. So that's me being told of, I suppose. <laughs> but at the same time, that kind of hard-nosed realism doesn't seem like the way forward. There's always more stuff. So for this, maybe I have to turn inwards. And somebody who will help me with that is designer Basse Stittgen. And he's a German designer working in Amsterdam, and he's showing me his work. And folks, you can't see it right now, but think of something deeply, deep dark red, almost black, cow's blood. Because this work is the result of Basse's fascination with the slaughter industry. And if you look at it, the end product of that fascination, you're sort of struck by the beauty of it, at least I was, and it got me wondering whether he knew that thinking about blood would get him to this kind of work. Somehow it was not so much even like a conscious choice, I was just, well, I have this like really big fascination for material always, and I thought, okay, now I, I came to this point where I said I want to make my own, and then I did research into that, and like I said earlier, somehow it turned out to be blood it came to that and then of course well blood is not blood you know it's very um there's every uh, it's a very complex um topic actually especially also when you take uh animal blood into the equation because there you have like all kinds of different uh schemes of how value is generated out of it and the material that i'm creating is actually made from discarded cow blood so this blood would actually be a waste, or as the industry that processes it would call it, a negative value byproduct. And um, also saying that it's a waste, you know, somehow it implies that I want to make products out of that and work on a waste problem, which is really not the case. It's not a waste problem, it's the industry in itself that is problematic and the scale of it. So that's the work with animal blood that I have been have been doing that this and that's also then leading to the objects that I make because they're also related to different aspects of the research. For example, the record that I made that plays the heartbeat of a cow. That's something that I feel like 
it's actually creating this intimate moment. I think it's very intimate to listen to somebody's heartbeat. And int intimacy between the human and the animal is actually something that's completely erased in this relationship that is created through uh, the consumption of animals. Actually, you are not able to have any intimate moment with the animal, or you could maybe consider that eating someone is intimate, but that's very, <laughs> I mean, that's a different story. Has it brought you new insights that you hadn't expected to to have when you started out so you think one thing and then you start actually doing it and then you encounter other things so so are there any things that surprised you doing this yes definitely just working on this project and doing this research really also changed my habits as a consumer i have to say i was a big meat eater i never really thought about it that much and then now through working with this i became I'm not completely vegetarian, but I, I, for me, I actually often see myself as like part of the audience. I engage with it through design and through my practice, and that also has a big influence on me then personally. But I somehow like learn those things through working. Like, is there something now you know about design, having tangled with the slaughter industry? that you couldn't know before that? And are there lessons for you or maybe even for any designer after having done this project? We designers, you know, we would like to um, see ourselves, you know, like as the, as the problem solvers, the good guys, you know, but it's, it's, I mean, it's creating a lot of problems as well. And, you know, all the, yeah, it's, it's really just, uh, it's really, it's maybe a little bit like a humbling experience also to see like uh, whatever you do and you think like maybe it's good you know it can just be like the complete opposite of that you know and just because you know it's designed and you like did like this um uh, process that you learn somewhere you know it doesn't mean like that like your good intentions translate into a good project you know that's your final statement. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you about is uh, we were at this big wayside. And, um, I asked the man in charge there about you know, design and new material. And I asked him what he thought about that. He said, well, actually, I would love it if there, was, if there, if there were fewer materials. If there was just, uh, just five to work with, that would make our work a lot easier. Um, can you sympathize or is this not what you wanted to hear? No, I completely, um, I completely understand this uh, this statement, and I think it's, yeah, it's true. You know, like I'm not gonna be able to get like the whole like uh, quote together, but it's from uh, Dieter Rams. You know that he says like we don't need more objects, but we need uh, systems and processes. You know that um, that do, that we need new systems and processes instead of new objects and we don't need objects at our house that are made out of blood you know and i feel like this is not gonna help to uh make anything better you know so that's also why i refrain from doing it but what i feel what we need is awareness to also have a common understanding of uh how things get produced and then through that you can have a discussion maybe about the ethics of production and consumption when you have the same knowledge between all the people involved in it, be it the producer and the consumer and like everyone I think should be aware of the implications of the ways of how we produce things and from there on I think together maybe you can find new ways of um, 
producing, uh, I don't know, more sustainably, ethically, like all the good things, you know. <laughs> So, Wieneke, um, honestly, would you have Bas's work in your house? Oh, I would love to turn a record or, or play a record with cow's blood and the heart of a cow on it, for sure. And I'm very, I've only heard it, but I'm very curious to see it. It's beautiful. If you think about all those rivers of blood that this country generates, and then to see it in these tiny little works that really sort of, um, that messes with you, in in a in a good way, I think. And after all of this, can you explain something about what we're going to hear next? Um, well, that's a good question. Because uh, yes, this was episode one, and next up, guess what is episode two? And in our next episode, we're trying to figure out what makes all of this run, what powers all of these machines, all of those industries. We're going to talk about energy. We're going to wrestle with power. New Material is a podcast production by Het Nieuwe Instituut, based on the New Material Award, organized by the Doen Foundation, Fonds Quadraat and Het Nieuwe Instituut. Made by host Maarten Westerveen, editor-in-chief Winneke van Muiswinkel, research and concept Ton Koehorst en Jannetje Innetveld, program management Ellen Zoete, project coordination Ole Lundin, sound engineer Alfred Koster and communication Sylvie van Oost.